Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 141, How to Get Away with Murder. Last time, John Zimiskis murdered Nicephorus Phocas and was hailed as emperor in his place. The way the general had gained access to the corridors of power was ingenious but the success of the coup depended on the actions which John and his partner in crime, Basil Le Capinos, took next. As you already know, the eunuch's influence in Constantinople was key. He was able to gather the palace staff and instruct them to accept the regime change. He had heralds spread the news around the city, and he outlawed looting, which often accompanied political disturbances. These moves meant that the city was calm, bathing the news in a sense of inevitability. We should also remember that Nicephorus was just a caretaker emperor in the eyes of many people. He was there to rule until the Macedonian princes came of age. John was promising to do the same, and so in some respects, little had changed. The remaining members of the Focus inner circle were quickly seized. Nicephorus's brother Leo and his son had fled to the Achaea Sophia, and out of respect for his old comrade, John ordered that they be treated well, as they were put on a boat and sent into exile on the island of Lesbos. Meanwhile, agents headed out to the eastern front to find Leo's other son, Bardas, who was now a senior military commander. He too was honourably incarcerated at Amasia in the Armenia Khan. The rest of the army seemed to have taken the change of leadership in stride. Zimiskis was one of the finest commanders in the empire. Many soldiers had served with him or heard tales of his exploits. Despite the dark act he'd just committed, he was still one of them. Like Nicephorus, he was a landed magnate from a military family who was fully on board with the conquest army. There seemed little reason to protest his rise if he was going to maintain the status quo. The fact that John provided continuity was not likely to be well received by the constituencies who had been frightened 
by the military dictatorship in their midst, namely the people of Constantinople and the church. So John worked swiftly to allay their fears. Soon after the murder, he met with the patriarch Polyuctus to make a deal. Zimisces needed to be publicly crowned and to receive the church's blessing. But having just violated a major commandment, the church could hardly wave him through without objections. Generally speaking, the church got on board with political coups. It would take an ultra-principled and ultra-popular prelate, uh, like, say, John Chrysostom, to stand up to imperial power and expect to get away with it. Apolyuctus had conviction, but was no martyr. He was also quite happy to see the back of the intractable Nicephorus, so negotiations began. Scapegoats were needed for the murder, and as we discussed last time, the Empress Theophano was the first served up. A couple of minor conspirators were thrown in, giving the church a fig leaf of moral cover. And the Patriarch also demanded that John give away his personal fortune as an act of penance. Then he asked that he abandon Nicephorus's demand to appoint all new bishops. Zimisces readily agreed, and was quick to be seen in all quarters as generous and personable in a way Nicephorus had never been. A lot of his money was given to Thracian farmers who had suffered in the recent famine, while the new emperor also invested heavily in the city's main leper hospital, allegedly tending to victims personally. He then made a great show of restoring the financial perks which Nicephorus had removed from the Senate, actually increasing the stipends they received simply for being resident at the capital. Next, he issued a remittance of taxation to certain provinces, including his own home base, the Armeniacon. As Antony Caldellis notes, this was pork-barrel politics, and it worked. Basil was now entrenched in his role at the top, and he took charge of the government whenever John was on campaign. Though the eunuch was feared and mistrusted by some, he was a reassuring civilian face at the top. Zimisces had made getting away with murder look easy, but these things never are. As I mentioned when Nicephorus took the throne, the very demonstration that the top job can be seized usually prompts imitators. John had calmed the immediate political waters, but beyond them, ripples were spreading quickly. For Zimisces to be viewed as a legitimate Vasilevs, he would have to still the whole of the Byzantine Ocean. And that would be far harder. Before we can go forward, we need to take one step back. During the period of the coup, Byzantine forces at Antioch were on the move. As I mentioned in episodes past, the Hamdanid realm had fallen into chaos after the death of Seyf With various power struggles going on in the cities and the desert, no Arab force opposed the capture of Antioch. The fall of the city, though, had sent warning signals across the whole of the Middle East. We'll get to the counterattacks soon, 
but one city which responded not with anger, but by rolling over, was Aleppo. As you can see on the map, the former capital of Saif's realm was the nearest city to Antioch when you travel inland from the coast. This put it in an extremely vulnerable position, and it was currently isolated politically. The governor of Aleppo was a man who I'll pronounce as Karguya. He was one of Saif's ministers, and he decided to rule alone rather than take orders from Saif's son. Under military pressure, in December 969, he asked the Romans for help. This was not an unprecedented move. You may recall that factions at Antioch had done the same a few years earlier. Better to get the Byzantines on side than become their next target. The commander at Antioch was Petros, the eunuch retainer of the Phokas family. He marched to Aleppo, driving off the rivals of Karakuya, but, acting in a way Nicephorus presumably directed, he set up his own siege of the city. Aleppo held out for another month before surrendering. There was to be no violent sack, though. Instead, Petros imposed specific terms on the city, turning it into an official Roman client. Essentially, Karguya now ruled at the pleasure of the emperor. He had to pay a small tribute. His men would have to serve in the Byzantine army if requested. He had to resist Muslim armies coming to Byzantium and was not allowed to punish converts to Christianity. Aleppo was also a major trade center for goods passing from Iraq to the Mediterranean, and imperial officials were now to tax the exchanges, bringing a nice windfall for the empire. For their part, the Romans would leave him to govern as he wished, would not ask his men to fight against fellow Muslims, and would also not punish Islamic converts in the borderlands. Unlike at Melitene and Tarsus, the Romans had not ordered the Muslims of Antioch to leave. They were allowed to stay, in part because the city had a large Christian population already, and in part because it was a big place, and finding new settlers wasn't easy. This treaty demonstrates the potential limits of Roman expansion. Antioch and Laodicea were both coastal cities. They could be easily reinforced by sea and provided a good shield for Cilicia. But Aleppo was across the mountainous country in the flatlands of Syria proper. To attempt to conquer it meant dealing with the Bedouin who stalked the countryside. It meant inviting Arab reprisals on an isolated outpost and it meant ruling over a city of Muslims. None of these appealed to the Romans. They were far happier leaving a buffer state to guard the frontiers than attempting to annex more Arab cities into the empire. And remember that Petros would only have learnt of his master's murder during the negotiations, so Nicephorus himself presumably established the framework for this arrangement. We will talk more about the limits of empire in the forthcoming 
mini end-of-the-century episodes. Showing his magnanimity, John accepted the deal which Petros had struck and invited the eunuch to go on serving as a general. Despite being a focus loyalist, John presumably felt that as a eunuch, Petros was unlikely to lead a rebellion against him. Meanwhile, Zimiskis was busy putting out fires that had started during Nicephorus's cantankerous last few years. For example, he released the leadership of the Monophysite church, who Phocas had exiled. They were allowed to return to Melitene and continue their unorthodox ways. While in the West, John decided to shut down the festering Italian war by dispatching an imperial bride to Otto II. We're not sure what other recognition John offered the quote-unquote Roman emperor, but a royal marriage was a significant gesture. The girl in question seems to have been John's niece, so though she was now imperial, she was not born in the purple. This was in line with Romanos Lecapinos' decision to marry his granddaughter to the Bulgarian Tsar rather than a true Macedonian. Her name was Theofano, and she married Otto II in 972. In Western sources, she's given credit for spreading imperial court culture, but she is never mentioned in the Byzantine histories. Obviously, as a usurper, John's instinct was to pacify these trouble spots with haste. But he was also now aware of a true existential crisis unfolding on the Danube, which would require his full attention. As you may remember, the Bulgarians and Byzantines had been at peace for decades, but Tsar Peter had refused to agree to Nicephorus's terms as they renegotiated peace. So, in order to punish his neighbours, Phocas invited the Rus to raid their territory from the north. This they did, and then they went home. Chastened, the Bulgarians accepted the Roman terms, and peace resumed. Unfortunately, the Rus prince, Sviatoslav, had been very impressed by what he'd seen along the Danube. The Bulgarian trading posts on that river had grown wealthy. And why not? They facilitated exchange between the Magyars on one side, the Rus and Pechenegs on the other, and the Romans to the south. This meant that a variety of prized commodities came through there to be purchased by precious Byzantine gold. Sviatoslav had captured some of these towns during his raid, and as he spent the next winter in Kiev, he pondered whether he could move his whole operation 600 kilometers south and make a Danube trading town his new capital. Remember, the Rus state was held together by commerce. Though the Varangians are famous as raiders, it was as merchants that they made true profits. The Rus state at Kiev was a series of trading posts running along the Dnieper River. 
With the money they made from fur and slaves, they were able to keep armies in the field to subdue the local Slavs and fend off attacks from the ferocious Pechenegs. Those fearsome steppe nomads were key to Sviatoslav's decision-making. The Dnieper River runs straight to the Black Sea, but it has a series of unpassable rapids which make it impossible to sail directly. The Rus had to climb onto the banks, carry their boats, belongings and slaves, and move up or downstream in order to continue. These moments made them extremely vulnerable to attack by the Pechenegs. The Danube had no such disadvantages. In fact, not only did it offer easy access to the Black Sea, but various river routes, north and south, would open up fresh possibilities. It was all too tempting for Sviatoslav. In the autumn of 969, so when Nicephorus was still alive and the Byzantine army were at Antioch, the Rus returned to Bulgaria. Sviatoslav brought his full army and hired Magyars and Pechenegs for the campaign. The Bulgarians were now very vulnerable. Their victories over Byzantium were built on a tenacious watch over the mountain passes and their corps of steppe riders. But the Rus were attacking from the north, avoiding the mountains, and had matched their horsemen with their mercenaries. Sviatoslav made for the trading centre of Periaslavitz on the Danube and besieged it. The Bulgarian army came out to fight, but were defeated. The city was eventually stormed, and with it, the kingdom of Bulgaria began to crumble. The Rus were now able to cross into the Balkans and raid at will. Peter was already dead by this time, and his son Boris was unable to maintain control. Sviatoslav marched unopposed to Preslav, and many Bulgarian nobles threw in their lot with the invaders. Boris was allowed to stay at his capital, but like Aleppo, his kingdom would become an appendage of the expanding Rus state. This was the situation which greeted Zimiskis as he assumed office in early 970. We'll talk more about Bulgaria during the end of the century episodes, but we should remember that the kingdom was still governed in a steppe-like way, despite its conversion to Christianity. By that, I mean that it didn't have a money economy. The Tsar still had to intimidate and provide for his followers in order to gain their allegiance. He couldn't control them in the way the emperor's treasury could. So these shocking defeats to the Rus quickly unraveled those loyalties, and men began to look to Sviatoslav, sensing that he might make a better patron. That's not to say that there was no Bulgarian patriotism, or that some weren't resisting, but anti-Byzantine feelings still ran deep, particularly amongst the noble families. And so, better ally yourself with the new strongman in the region than risk leaving the door open to a Roman attack. And 
things were still fluid. The Rus couldn't afford to dilute their main forces too much, so they sent garrisons to various key Bulgarian forts, but otherwise it was the natives who were still running the show. This light occupation of Bulgaria also only concerns the old core of the Bulgar Khanate, from the Danube down to the Hemus Mountains. Western Bulgaria, which was a large chunk of territory in the Western Balkans, was left to fend for itself. As I say, more on that soon. So, as spring 970 arrived, John was faced with a potential Rus takeover of Bulgaria. This was a nightmare scenario for the Romans. They'd obviously spent much blood and treasure trying to pacify their northern neighbour. And the one good thing about the Bulgarians is that they never had a fleet. Without one, they didn't really stand a chance of taking Constantinople. But the Rus did. It may not have been comparable to the Imperial Navy, but it was there nonetheless. All of Byzantine progress across the past half century has been built on peace in the Balkans. A new, aggressive pagan power on their doorstep was absolutely unacceptable. Not to mention that there would be more action to come in Syria, and a two-front war was something every emperor was determined to avoid. There was some sort of diplomatic exchange during this time, which made each side's position clear. Sviatoslav was moving to the Danube for the sake of his people. He didn't want war with Constantinople, uh, but he knew they would not be happy and conflict was probably inevitable. So he led his men south into Roman territory and captured the city of Philippopolis. Probably the prince was just trying to intimidate and improve his bargaining position. However, we are also told that he had a candidate for the Roman throne in his pocket. This was Kalokiros, the Roman nobleman who'd negotiated the initial deal with him to attack Bulgaria. Perhaps Sviatoslav was planning on a march to the Bosphorus to see if he could get his own candidate into the palace. After all, when he left Kiev, Nicephorus was on the throne, and now he'd gone. Why couldn't Kalokiros sneak in and do the same? This would then get him what he really wanted, which was recognition of the Rus's new home base. Whatever his motives, the northern army marched through Thrace in the direction of the capital. Zimiskis had been preparing for this conflict and had transferred about 10,000 of his better troops over to Europe under the command of his closest ally and brother-in-law, Bardas Sklerus. But this was not an impressive number, and it would take much longer to disentangle troops from Armenia and Cilicia and get them to the Bosphorus. Outnumbered and under pressure, Sklerus decided to set an ambush to slow the advancing Rus. He made contact with the enemy near the city of Adrianople. After concealing a portion of his men in woods overlooking the road, Bardas marched north to find the Rus camp. Once he did, 
he launched his cavalry at the Pechenegs who were serving with them. The steppe warriors took the bait and gave chase. This was a dangerous move, and the general suffered a steady stream of casualties as his men rode away. However, the plan worked. The Pechenegs were lured to the ambush point where they were badly mauled. Better still, as they broke and fled, they ran straight into the rest of the Rus' army who were following on their heels. The Byzantines were able to charge and drive the whole force back to its camp. It was a minor victory, but it displayed the discipline and skill of the Roman cavalry and gave Sviatoslav pause. John stayed at home during this battle. He was still consolidating his rule and communicating with the Eastern Front. His caution was wise, because at the same time that he was getting reports on movements in the Balkans, news broke that the entire Focus family was rising against him. He would have to leave the Balkans undefended as he recalled Sclerosi's troops to defend the capital. And by autumn, news arrived that Antioch was being besieged by an Arab army sent from Cairo. Next time, John faces a two-front war and a civil war. This bitter fortune is no more than he deserved. But Zimisky's was to prove equal to any challenge. And rather than setting the stage for his comeuppance, this confluence of events would present him with the opportunity for his greatest triumph. In the meantime, send in any narrative-based end-of-the-century questions. This will just be a brief pause to catch our breath. Any big existential ones can wait until 1025. <laughs>